I've read the book Will by Will Self. It's his autobiography, and I did read the uncorrected proof, so bear with me. One part of me thinks Will Self is an absolutely astounding writer, and another thinks he's an overrated, solipsistic, far too wordy, gaudy, show-offy, and wasted talent. This is what I guess constitutes the first part of more than one of his autobiographical books. None may follow, but this one covers his earlier years throughout addiction. He references William S. Burroughs enough times to make me think he not only wanted to write this book as though he actually were Burroughs, which would be strange, as Burroughs himself wrote quite a number of autobiographical books in the midst of addiction. But then again, the book is so selfishly, pun intended, written that it's impossible to know. The result is a book that is written by an intelligent and acutely self-aware author. Self has created a book that delves into how people can act when in the throes of addiction. I guess many readers can loathe his experimental style, plus the fact that his entire book is written in the third person. Here's a quote. The May morning sunlight detonates against 1960s facade and its diamond-shaped window panes explode. Will senses the build-up of commuter traffic behind him as cars, trucks and vans hump along the Clapham Road towards the city centre, a steely testudo ever forming, dispersing and reforming. Will thinks of the desperate manoeuvre he pulled off from the way from Kensington. You could have fucking killed yourself. No, really, you could have. Will's fond of Rockham Fold's maxim, God invented sex in order to place man in embarrassing positions. Yet none, surely, are as shameful as his own, for he lurches across town, hobbled by his half-mastered trousers and underpants from one impulsive liaison to the next. Self is currently quite sober, and as such, he's delved into a domain that I feel is always a pain for writers, soberly trying to describe the feeling of being intoxicated. While I think Self pulls it off for most of the time, his psychogeography, a word he uses often, seemingly can't dissuade him from, u- from adding difficult words while creating a solipsistic world that the addict is almost always in. I feel like writers like that like writers like Willem S. Burroughs and Alan Moore has handled have handled descriptions of mayhem and debauchery far better than self has, mainly due to my personal dislike of self style in this book. Sure, the made-up words and stylistic slurs probably describe how Self felt at the time, but great on me. I wish he would have tightened up and hence produced a more effervescent look back. I'm quite sure Self knows what he's doing. This book was very easy to read, which made me wonder what was wrong with me. Ultimately, Self's style is quite easily digested if one is able to circumvent all the trappings, of which there are quite a few. I can't say I enjoyed this book nor that I will remember it fondly, but it's an interesting look into the current mind of an intelligent person who was a massive drug drug addict a couple of decades ago. Zadie Smith, Grand Union This is the first Zadie Smith book I've read, a collection of short stories, most, most of which are very short. The first one hit me well. In a matriarchy, you'd hear women boasting to their mates, I subsumed him in my anus. I really made his penis disappear. I just stole it away and hid it deep inside myself until he didn't even exist. It's all in the middle of a story that is obviously written by a person who didn't exploit the material for the sake of igniting shock and awe. In other words, Smith is far away from Brett Easton Ellis and his ilk. Another quote. 
My son asked me if the young man was sick in the head, which is our downtown downtown euphemism for batshit crazy. But my daughter, who is very, very savvy, said, no way, look at his clothes. I thought that was an interesting answer. It meant she was becoming an American. It meant she now refused to believe rich people can be batshit crazy. Some of the conversations between Americans and Jamaicans were good to read. The lack of obvious plot felt fresh and lovely. On the other hand, I'm left with a feeling that I breezed through the stories. They were easily read for sure, but I won't remember many of them. Only the sentiment that this collection left me with. It's a good feeling, and I will read Smith again. Brett Anderson, Afternoons with the Blinds Drawn I enjoyed Brett Anderson's first autobiographical book, Cold Black Mornings, immensely. Anderson proved to be eloquent, engaging and terse, all in good ways. This second book should never have been. I mean, the first chapter of the book is the book I said I would never write. The first one finished where Swade were just about to hit the big time, which they did. Quote, The response to Swade was so disproportionate that there seemed to be very few historical parallels. While it's not something that I'm particularly proud of, it's something that needs to be addressed as it became an integral element to our story. For those who weren't there, or who have forgotten it, it might give a sense of the scale of the media reaction to say that even before the debut album was released, we would end up gracing 19 front covers. It was a phenomenon that of course was bound to have pernicious consequences, not least with Bernard's later rejection and drift away from the band. But while the frothy delirium still seemed like fun, we just gripped onto the seat in front of us and and enjoyed the ride. There's a lot to be said for Anderson's ways of going about the ride. I quote, Most rock bands tend to follow the same predictable trudge through the same predictable roads, through the same predictable checkpoints, as preordained as the life cycle of a frog or something. And so the tale is always going to have an air of inevitability, especially when everyone knows what happens in the last chapter. So instead, what I'm going to try to do in these pages is to use elements of my own story as a way to reach out and reveal the broader picture, to look at my journey from struggle to success and to self-destruction and back again, and use that narrative to talk about some of the forces that acted on me, and perhaps maybe to uncover some sort of truth about the machinery that wears away, often unseen, especially by those on whom it is working, to create the bands that people hear on the radio. This might seem a little ambitious, but it's my way of trying to claim some sort of ownership of the second part of my story. A story that was so assiduously documented by the media, and which certainly doesn't need another retelling in that conventional form. That is, miraculously, what saved the book from becoming another predictable book in the annals of rock lore. Anderson is acutely aware of the fact that he did become a bit of a rock cliché with drugs and what Neil Tennant from Pet Shop Boys calls the imperial phase, i.e. the time span where a band thinks it's mastered the art form, are concerned with all the problems that easily and quickly follow. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, and it's very beneficial in this case. As a Suede fan back in the day, and for the first two albums I must add, I recall Anderson and Bernard Butler sniping words at each other via music mags. It was a complete debacle, a fight which I think shouldn't have happened in public. 
Anderson writes about it in a beauteous and apologetic fashion without drawing it out for too long. And this is but one of uh, many examples of the strengths of this book and how hindsight really does play a major key. Or to quote Anderson, quoting Heraclitus, I paraphrase, A man does not step in the same river twice. The man is not the same and the river is not the same. Another quote from the book. Young men plunged into the crucible of success are by their very nature immature and instinctive and impetuous. These are the fiery ingredients that also spark drama and creativity and the thrilling imbalance and sense of potential disaster that make the spectacle so exciting to witness. Without this essential flaw in their characters, the whole thing would be far less interesting, but of course it's a precarious house of cards, always teetering on the point of collapse. Cellar taping over the cracks and disregarding the damage we spotted on regardless. Superfan David Barnett wrote Swayed, the authorised biography, a highly gossipy and insightful book. Where Anderson's first book did not go was into that territory, which this one dips its toes into. It's not a bad thing, but if I were to chip away at something, it's some minutiae that's frankly boring. Recalled stuff from Suede recordings, quotes from Anderson's personal driver, etc. just turned me off. Luckily, there's not much of it in this book. One of the good things with this book is that it's not merely a look back in time. Here's an example, and I quote. This would probably get me into trouble, and I'd love to be proved wrong, and maybe I'm too out of touch to see it clearly, but unfortunately I can't see where the game-changing scenes and the movements of the digital age are likely to come from. I feel that the defining cultural events of our times, social media, has cast such a huge shadow, and even though people still lo- passionately love music, it has become sort of a lifestyle accessory rather than a central defining core of their being, and because of that, its impact and its generational resonance has waned. And while I'm up on my soapbox, I might as well take the opportunity to blather on a little more about some broader, broader issues. I feel that it should worry everyone deeply that since the decimation of the music business at first by internet piracy and then the proliferation of streaming services, it's increasingly hard for artists who make left-field material to make a living. Of course there are always anomalies, but I've noticed that the sort of new bands that should have had healthy, lucrative careers back in the 70s and 80s and 90s make interesting non-commercial music are struggling to survive. Clearly this raises class issues. Are we to assume that the working class voices will be virtually unheard in alternative music in a few years' time because it just no longer seems a viable career and the only way left-field bands can survive if they are bankrolled by well-off parents? However, there are wider and more troubling implications beyond this. Right now, it's a phenomenon that probably doesn't unduly worry these denizens of the upper echelons of the music industry who are still earning big money making mainstream pop music, but it really should. The strata of the creative world are all linked, and in many ways codependent rather like an ecosystem. Not wishing to sound oversimplistic, it seems to me that the more creative marginal musicians have always been, the creative uh, creatures that the commercial artists have fed off, diluting and sanitizing and popularizing their ideas. In the same way that if plant life were to die out, it it would create a chain of events that would lead to the extension of carnivores. And I believe that the work done at the margins of the music industry is utterly essential to the health of the music world as a whole. Without this motor that 
generates ideas. We can envision, envisage a sort of bleak culture of vacuum, whereby the only starting points that commercial artists that are incre increasingly based on copies of previous historic successes, leading to a horribly nostalgic ersatz music landscape that is meaningless and devoid of any traction, or worth or vitality. Some might argue that we arrived at that point years ago. The success of X Factor and Four Town, mo amongst other pop movements, would seem to support their case. And mainstream music has always been a proclivity against sentimentalism, but at least there are glimmers of interesting work. And some of uh, the most insightful, uh, honest things laid bare in this book are among the most painful to read. And I quote again. Bernard's father, who had been ill for some time, died on the eve of the tour. Ashen-faced, we all received the news while in a hotel in New York. For some insane reason, instead of cancelling the tour and giving him time to grief and the space to try and recover, we just truncated it. It was a terrible, terrible mistake as Bernard became understandably more and more withdrawn and distant as the days move on. And I yet to develop the emotional maturity to be able to reach out and comfort him as a friend began to cravenly hide within the excesses of life on the road. As we pulled in different directions, our relationship began to splinter and we began to de demonize each other, creating a chain of events from which we would never ever recover. Altogether, this is a quite beautiful book, one that sparkles with many terrific stories and insight. Few writers possess, possess the quiet Elan of Anderson, a writer who is as good in book form as his, in his song lyrics, a rare gem among writers.